Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, if you were with us last Sunday, you'll know that we've uh, paused in our series through the Gospel of John in order to uh, take a look at some pressing cultural issues uh, in and of our day. We've begun a short sermon series that uh, we've entitled Stewardship in a Strange New World, How to Live Strong in a Culture that is Coming Apart. Now, last week, we acknowledged that our way of life in America is undergoing a seismic shift, and it seems to be taking place in a relatively short amount of time. We live in a strange new world that is strange because it is unsettling and hard to understand. It is new for us because it's radically different from the world that came before. As a culture, we are intentionally redefining what is good and what is evil. We're redefining family and marriage and gender and sex. And more and more, we're deciding that we're going to decide our personal identity based upon how we think and how we feel uh, about ourselves. A friend of ours reported and shared with uh, Cheryl that as uh, she was making an application, giving some information to one of our schools in the North Carolina University system, she had to scroll through uh, some 20 different gender designations before she could get to the word woman. We live in a strange new world that brings increasing pressure to conform and to agree with ideas and practices that don't have uh, any connection to biblical truth. And so for the next several Sundays, we're going to look, God willing, to the Bible for direction on how we can steward our lives well in this very confusing and often disorienting cultural moment we're in. Now, to steward our lives... And this is important, to steward our lives is essentially to manage and care for everything that God has put within our reach, to acknowledge that it all belongs to him, and to make the decision to use what he's put within our reach for his glory. Everything, everything, from our children to our families to our parents to our schools to our classmates, everything to the resources we have, to the abilities we have, to the opportunities we have, that we make a decision as followers of Christ that we will take those things, see them as from him, see them as belonging to him, and then manage and use them for his glory in ways that he says are right and good and true. Our aim in this kind of stewardship in a season of great pressure is to, is to live out of both faith and faithfulness. We want to steward well in this cultural moment so that we can be found full of faith and full of faithfulness rather than being found full of fear and ready to flee. 
even when pressure comes. Now, today and next week, we're going to look together specifically at how to steward one of God's greatest gifts to us, and that is the gift of truth. And this is so important that we're gonna take two Sundays to try and unpack this. Uh, stewarding the truth, as we're going to see from our passage for the morning, is stewarding that gift of understanding and seeing reality that literally sets us free and choosing the truth over uh, lies that enslave us. We're gonna challenge ourselves this Sunday and next to live committed to the truth God gives and at the same time to commit not to try to do that on our own. Now, the Sunday after Labor Day, we're going to look together at how to steward our key relationships, particularly in an age that promotes alienation, division, and separation. And we're going to give special attention to our kids and our students and I'll seek to help you give the people you love, especially your kids, a fighting chance to live whole lives in a fracturing world. But today we want to begin with the stewardship of truth. And we want to ask and answer the question, or begin to answer the question, how can we steward God's truth well in an age that is marked by lies. In our passage for this weekend, Paul points us to an answer. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll be looking together at verses 14, 15, and 16. 1 Timothy 3, 14, 15, and 16. Now, Paul is the author. He's writing to Timothy, who is a young uh, co-worker with him, a pastor. And uh, Timothy is, is a pastor that Paul has left behind in Ephesus to lead the church there. And uh, the church at Ephesus needed help because it faced pressure. It was facing pressure from the outside as well as the inside. Let me unpack that quickly. Ephesus was a wealthy city. It was a city that had a phenomenal number of religious expressions, all kinds of gods, all kinds of temples, that kind of thing. And what that means is that Ephesus was a city with multiple versions of truth. It was also a wealthy city. And so it was, was uh, very attractive. Uh, tuned to consuming and having and possessing. It was also a city that uh, had a stream of the occult running through it. And so it was a city that uh, had lots of versions of the truth of what really mattered and so on and so forth. And it was out of this city with uh, all kinds of sexual immorality and lots of different practices. It was out of this kind of city that the Ephesians had come to faith in Christ, had been taken out of, of uh, the multitude of truths by which that city lived and placed into new life in Christ and had begun to live out the uh, faith and the life as it is in Jesus. And so they lived constantly with pressure coming from the outside to go back to the old way of life they once had. 
They also were facing, though, pressure from the inside because some false teachers had come who had parts of the Christian faith down and right and, and correct, but they had mixed error with it. And so they were teaching a form of Christianity that effectively was an appeal to um, compromise the faith that they had originally received. So there was pressure on the inside of the church. There was pressure coming from the outside. All kinds of versions of truth that uh, were being offered to them. And Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus to lead the church through those pressures and all of those alternative truths that were coming at them, encouraging them to leave the faith or somehow to compromise the faith. So the church was a church under pressure. Now, Paul had hoped that he could come back and help Timothy, that he could do the work with Timothy, alongside Timothy. He had hoped that he could come quickly to deal with it all himself, but for whatever reason, he couldn't. So he writes Timothy to give further instructions. And in our passage, Paul explains exactly what it is he's after in his writing. There are some things that Timothy needs to know and then share with the other believers in that city. Paul says effectively that the purpose of his letter is to call the Ephesians to behave, and this is important, according to what they believe in Christ. He not only tells them to behave rightly, but he goes on and he points them to how this can be done, especially as they live their lives under pressure. Look with me, 1 Timothy chapter three, beginning at verse 14. Paul writes and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we gather around your word this morning, and we ask you to speak to us. Our hearts long to meet with you, to hear from you, for we need what only you can give to us, and that is truth. There are so many voices, Father, that are speaking to us, speaking at us, so many voices that would help us, that would want to help us to know how to think, what to believe, and how to live out our lives. We feel the pressure from the outside. Sometimes we can feel pressure even from the inside. And the reality is, unless you speak to us, unless you give us your truth, we are lost. We find ourselves in darkness. We find ourselves wandering. Oh Lord God, how grateful we are that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And by it, we can know what is real and true and good and what is not. So speak, speak to us, Lord. 
meet us here. I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, with, this, with the word open before us, I want us to spend some time looking at this passage carefully. Now, I know immediately that what I need to do first is to explain just what it is that Paul means when he talks about behaving in the household of God. You see it in verse 15, part A. This behavior that Paul is speaking of actually has to do with lifestyle, living a certain way rather than doing certain things. So Paul, as he says, the reason I'm writing this letter is so that you will know how to behave. He's saying, I'm writing this letter so that you will know how to live out your life, particularly as you're living under pressure. His emphasis here on behavior, which is something we would perhaps assume right out of the gate, is not an emphasis on legalism. This is not legalism, as if somehow the Ephesians have to do a certain number of things in order to be saved, or they have to do a certain number of things in order to stay saved, or they have to do a certain number of things in order for God to love them. No, 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 no. That is contrary to the gospel. We know, right? We know that we are saved by grace through faith. It is never of works, lest any of us should ever boast. That is not how we come to faith. We come to faith by the grace of God shown to us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And when we repent of our sins and put our faith in him, we're given new life. We are born again. Our salvation, a relationship, fellowship with God, all of these things, they have nothing to do with what we have done, everything to do with what Jesus has done. That is not what Paul is saying, but what he is saying is important. He's saying both here and throughout the letter that the gospel, watch this, that the Ephesians believed in order to be saved is something that should be stewarded or used to shape them and to shape the way they live. Paul knows that what we truly believe ultimately determines how we behave. And every pressure we feel in the course of, of life to compromise the faith, to conform to the world, always, don't miss this, always begins with an attempt to change the way we think and to change the way we believe. Very, very important. How we, what we believe determines how we live. And this is a strategy. I want every parent to hear this, every student in school, to hear this, how we live because it is driven by what we believe, how we live because it's determined by what we believe is actually a target that others are seeking to change and the way they seek to change our behavior is always first to change our beliefs. It always comes at the point of compromise. Addition, correction, or amendment of our faith. The enemies of the Christian faith and the ultimate enemy, Satan, always wants to drive a wedge between what we believe and how we behave in order to change the way we believe so how we behave might also be changed. Does that make sense? 
And that means for every parent in this room, it becomes absolutely critical, absolutely vital that you understand, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but that you understand that stewarding your children means stewarding the people and the things that have access and the ability and the opportunity to shape the way your children think and what they ultimately believe because it will, in the end, impact their behavior. This is precisely, of course, why Paul says to the Romans elsewhere, he says to them, listen, don't be conformed to this world, but you keep on being transformed. How? By doing good things, by trying harder to keep a checklist? No. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but keep on being transformed so that you become more like Jesus. How? By renewing your minds in the truth of God. And so that's why throughout the letter, Paul describes for the Ephesians what the gospel looks like as it is lived out both in a church and in individual lives. What we humans truly believe eventually drives and explains our behavior and that determines the course of our lives. And that is why truth matters. And what you and I need to understand is that behind the current push for the celebration and the acceptance of LGBTQ lifestyles, of gay marriage, of transgenderism, the redefinition of gender, the issue of abortion rights, and so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion. All of these things come down ultimately to the question of what truth is and who gets to decide what truth is. We are in literally a battle for truth and the minds and the hearts of people. Truth matters. What we believe to be true about reality finally drives how we behave in life. The Christian faith, anchored in Jesus, claims to be the truth, not a truth among other truths, but actually claims to be the truth that reveals and explains the beginning, the end, the purpose of the universe and of life itself. And that means that Jesus says, and he means much more than most of us imagine when he makes this extraordinary statement and says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus is literally saying, I am the center of all things. I am the center of the universe. That's why it never works simply to call Jesus a great teacher with great moral teachings. He wasn't just that. You can't read the gospels and see him that way. He makes an extraordinary claim. He says, if you want to understand the beginning and the end of this universe, why it's here, why it matters, where it's been and where it's going, you must understand me. If you understand me, you will understand the meaning of the universe. If you don't understand me, you will not. You'll only be left with a lot of guesses, false stories, false narratives, that's what you'll be left with. See, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. At the end of the day, if you take Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament, uh, for, for who he is and, and what he says, you are forced to make a decision. 
You are forced to say either he's right or he's crazy, but there is no middle ground with Jesus. You can never really say with honesty, he's a nice guy, good teacher. You've either got to say he is who he says he is or as we would anybody else who would make these kind of claims, he's crazy. So Paul is not only concerned about the outside pressures that the Ephesians face to return to their old beliefs, he's also concerned about the new beliefs coming through false teaching. True Christianity at the end of the day is lived out as people, watch this, are shaped by the truth of the gospel. But true Christianity is compromised whenever other truths are adopted or added or accepted. So in sum, Paul is saying, I'm writing this letter so that you'll know how to live out the truth and won't give in to the pressure of living on lies offered by others around you. Those who live by lies die by lies. Those who live by the truth will truly live. And that is the message of the New Testament and of Christianity in a nutshell. But that raises the question, how is this done practically? And how do you do it practically? How do you live out a life that's being shaped by the gospel when you're under pressure? You might not notice this immediately, but I want you to see with me how Paul makes the case in our passage that strong, godly living under pressure is always linked to a close, consistent life in community with God's people, the church. And that's why Paul reminds us first of the basics of what the church truly is. And then he moves to show us what a true church does with truth. And finally, he points to what the true church and its truth uh, bring to us under pressure. And because this is so important, I want us to look at the first two today, and then we'll look at the third. Notice with me, first of all, look at verse 15a. Paul reminds the Ephesians and all believers first of what church truly is. He says, if I delay, I want you to know how one ought to behave, live your life shaped by the gospel in the household of God, which is, he says, the church of the living God. Now notice that he describes the church in two ways. Paul has a number of metaphors he uses to describe the church, but he zeroes in on two. First, he says that the church is the household of God. Now, this is common knowledge to many of us, uh, the idea that the church consists of people who, by repentance and faith, have been brought into the family of God through adoption where we come into our biological families with physical birth, we come into this spiritual family through a new birth. God the Father becomes our Father. Christ becomes our elder brother. The Holy Spirit becomes our ever-present family help and guide, the one who binds us all together. And we revel in this. True diversity and inclusion actually belong to the church. It doesn't matter in the church of Jesus Christ when she is healthy. It doesn't matter who we are or where we've been. It doesn't matter our age or our race or our gender, our education or our wealth. The reality is we know that in this family that Christ has put us in, that we are equally loved. We have equal access to God the Father in Christ. And so we share a common father. We have a common mission. We have a common hope. We have a common 
future. We have a common language. We talk about mercy. We talk about grace a lot. We talk about salvation a lot. We talk about the shed blood of Christ a lot. We have a common set of values, things we love, things we treasure, all coming from the person and the work of Jesus. We are a family. We've got our own code. And we're blessed in that family. Because though we've got an extraordinary number of backgrounds, we find that we're all loved equally and loved equally well. There are relationships in this church family that would have never existed apart from Jesus Christ. And now they exist. I love that about the church of Jesus. We are a community in the form of a family. Now I wanna point something out to you before we move on to Paul's second picture and that is this. The fact that we are who we are, that we've been melded together as a family from all kinds of backgrounds and so on and so forth. The fact that we have a common mission and a common faith, a common commitment ultimately means something that a lot of us are uncomfortable with and that is we are peculiar. We're a little weird. When the world sees us talking about love and grace Relating to each other like that, it scratches his head and says, that makes no sense. When the world sees us living lives of sacrifice and surrender, putting our wants and our needs behind so that the needs of others can be met, when they see us sacrificing for the cause of Christ, we're really strange. And most of us, we don't like being strange. We want to fit in. We, we don't want to stick out. We want to fit in. We want to fly under the radar, right? We don't want to be noticed. And yet, here's the reality. In this world, if we live full out for Christ, we are going to stick out, stand out. We're going to look really weird. I was talking with a man yesterday and he said somebody had called him a Jesus freak. And I, I immediately, just like this, I immediately, just like this, I said, that's the greatest compliment anybody could ever pay you, that you are so deeply in love with Jesus, so committed to Christ, they called you a freak. He said, pastor, he said, I didn't take it that way at first. <laughs> I said, I know, I know, I know, I get it, I get it. Nobody wants to be called a freak, but when you pause and you think about it, if you're living so faithfully and so well with the love, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus, if Jesus is showing through, people call you a freak, oh my goodness. I cannot literally think of any higher compliment. In fact, 
I would love to pastor a whole church full of freaks. I'm pleading with you today. Yeah. We are a peculiar family. whose center is fully and finally on Jesus, and that makes us radically different. Notice secondly with me, though, that Paul describes the church also as the church of the living God. The word church, of course, here is vital for this description. If household conveys the idea of family, church in the original language means an assembly, and it conveys the idea of a gathering of people. So the church is the assembly of the people of the living God who gather regularly, who do exactly what we're doing right now. We come together out of a common love for Christ to hear his word, but also to meet him. Just as in the Old Testament times when God would come and make his presence known to his people as they gathered as his people to worship him, so too when God's people gather to worship him in Christ, God comes. The idea here is that whenever the Ephesian church or any local church gathers to worship God in Christ, they always have Christ in their midst. And in that gathering, they become his dwelling place a place where the only living, only true God can be known as he is worshiped. Very many times when we gather together, I find myself praying, oh God, help your people to hear your voice. Help your people to know that you're here. Can I just tell you, this is not a pep rally. This is not a pep rally. This is not a show. Listen, pep rallies and productions will never see you through the pressure that this world will put on you. What you need as you live out your life, if you will live your life for Christ, what you need is the presence of God, the felt presence of God, the the word of God made alive in your heart and mind like it is when God's people gather as his true church in one place because he keeps his promise to meet them where they are, as they are. There is an experience of God available to us in a place like this, in a gathering like this that is not available to us in any other way, shape, form, or fashion as we live our lives. This is something we need. This is something God gives to us, and it is precious, and it ought to be stewarded as well as the truth God gives us. Some years ago, I was in uh, Romania, not too long after the, uh, the communist regime had fallen, and uh, One of the pastors was sharing with me all that he had been through and told stories of how the government had figured out that if the church could keep meeting, the church would stay strong. Now, they didn't know why. 
You and I know why. When we meet together, God shows up. His word is given to us. We are made strong by his presence. We're made strong by his truth. We're encouraged in it. But he said the the communist authorities, they didn't understand that, but they knew that something happened if we kept getting together. So they turned off our power. They turned off our water. They put armed men around our building. They threatened us. They came into our building. They did everything they could to keep us from doing what we're doing right now. Why? Because the church of Jesus Christ and the lives of her people are always made stronger when we're doing what we're doing right now. When the word of God is taken and broken apart and shared with God's people, God takes his word by his spirit and applies it to hearts and minds. He encourages us where we need to be encouraged. He challenges us where we need to be challenged. He corrects us where we need to be corrected. And the net net of that is if we come to this place ready to meet him, ready to hear him, ready to lean into him. If we do that, we come out of those doors changed every single Sunday. That's the net net. Your enemy does not want you here. Your enemy does not want you to pay attention. Your enemy does not want you to meet the living God in this assembly or in this gathering because he knows that if he can keep you distracted and diverted, if he can cause you to see this as some kind of a spiritual pep rally or production with just the right lights and the this and that and the... I mean, if you want a production, go to Greensboro Coliseum. You're not going to get it here. I mean, there's... It's really good. But again, I'm going to say this again to you. A really good production or a really good pep rally is not going to see you through the pressure. You need to live in God. You need to hear from him. You need to meet him if you're going to make it through the pressure. If you're going to stay strong against the temptation to compromise. Every time we gather in Christ's name, we can say God is here. God is here to meet us. God is here to make himself known to us. So this is a beautiful picture. There's actually more here than we might imagine. God's given us a community to live in and to live with. And this is the secret, the great secret to living in the world but not being of the world. The community he gives is his own household or family. The community he gives is a church, an assembly that's shot through with his living presence. And every time we gather, every time we get together, We find ourselves encouraged and strengthened and corrected and all of those things and enabled then to go out, scattered to be the people of God. You don't have to, you you don't become a Christian by attending church, but you will attend church if you're a true Christian because you were made for moments just like this one. And I wonder, 
to whom God is speaking right now. Because he's here. He's here in a way like he is not everywhere else. But Paul doesn't leave that here. He goes on to explain to the Ephesians and to us what a church does with the truth that matters so much. Look at verse 15b. Paul shows us that the true church, the family of God regularly assembling and meeting him has been entrusted with the truth, the truth that he illustrates for us in verse 16. Do you see it there? It really is a summary of the gospel. The truth is a critical part of the church's responsibility, Paul is saying. The truth is entrusted uh, to, uh, by God to the church, and that gives the church a particular function both in the lives of its people and in the life of the world. The gift of God's truth makes the church a pillar of truth and a buttress of the truth. We, we've got a picture. I found this. This is from England. It's a great picture of what the church is. You see the pillar. You see the buttress. The pillar raises up, is, is there to lift, to lift something up. The buttress is there to support the pillar. You see it. Beautiful picture. The only place you'll find it in all the scripture, beautiful picture of the church. Let me unpack that for you. Paul says, as a pillar of the truth, the church holds high and exalts God's truth for everyone to see. And in that way is constantly proclaiming God's truth and presenting it. As a buttress of the truth, the church is constantly supporting the truth by reinforcing and protecting it. So don't miss this, the, the local church's work as a pillar and buttress of God's truth, it takes place in two ways. First, it proclaims and projects and promotes a gospel witness to the world saying, this is truth, this is truth, this is truth, this is truth, Christ is the center, the beginning, the end, and, and everything in between of the universe and its story centers on Christ. It proclaims and projects a gospel witness to the world, but second, it also proclaims and, and protects the gospel truth among the saints. And this is one of the chief ways believers are strengthened and reinforced under pressure. Indeed, the church with its community life, empowered by the Holy Spirit, anchored in its teaching and preaching of the gospel truth with a common commitment to practice that gospel together in the course of life is the single greatest secret of Christian strength. The pillar and buttress work of the church is what makes the call of Hebrews 10 possible and necessary for us, where it says to us, hold fast, hold on to the confession of your hope and don't waver. Remember, he who promised is faithful. Live together, always considering how to stir one another up to love and do good gospel works. Don't neglect meeting together as the habit of some is, but instead keep meeting, keep encouraging one another and do so all the more as you see and sense the day of Christ's return drawing near. This gathering is precisely what we need. 
the interaction between believers. I, I saw uh, uh, two sisters not too awfully long ago where one was going through a problem and the other was counseling her. And I love the picture because she was the one sister in Christ was taking another sister of Christ and was taking the word of God and speaking it into her life, building her up, making her stronger. I love that picture because that is a picture of the truth. What was she doing? She was buttressing the truth. She was reinforcing the truth. It wasn't that that sister didn't know the scripture that was being shared with her. It was that she needed to be reminded of it. She needed another sister to come alongside and say, don't forget, he's faithful. Don't waver, he's faithful. He's not gonna fail you. And I could see, it was like I could watch this one sister going through struggle being strengthened. It was almost as if she was starting to stand up straighter, stand up stronger because one sister had spoken the word of life into another. I love that picture. That is how the church is meant to work. As Christ gets closer, the pressure gets greater. And so does the need we have for community, for God's community, for the church. False teachers will always, always emerge to encourage us to adjust the truth by mixing it with error. And the world around us will always try hard to lure us into abandoning truth with substitute truths. The darkness with all of its deception hates the light and its truth, Jesus teaches us. One of the very best ways for us to steward the truth well is to stay close to the church and steward the church community well making this community the community we live in, we invest in, we live with. With the church, we live out the truth. We gather, we promote, we present God's truth to each other. We reinforce it where it's getting weak. We protect it where it's under attack. And then we scatter into the world, strengthened as little pillars and buttresses of our own, sent to present the gospel, well protected to a world that's living in lies and lies that can only lead them to death. So here's what I want to say, loved ones, in this cultural moment. We desperately need to commit ourselves to our faith, to God's truth, and we must take it more seriously. The days are now past for convenient, comfortable Christianity. The greater the pressure, the more the issue is going to be put to us, do you really believe? or not? Do you really believe or not? Richard Wurmbrand, who was persecuted and tortured mercilessly by the communist regime in Romania, said after his release that he had come to understand there are two kinds of believers. There are believers who truly believe and follow Jesus no matter what, and there are believers who believe that they believe, but compromise and give in when the pressure comes. True believers follow. Those who believe that they believe don't. We need to center our lives on the truth of God 
and the church that is the pillar and buttress of that truth. We need to focus and work hard at being formed like Christ and evangelistic at the same time. We need to be taught how to pray and worship and train our minds to think in Christian ways. We've got to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that our thought patterns and behaviors are Bible-driven, not culture-driven. We need the kind of gospel-centered community that only a local church can give. Listen, loved ones, we can, or when we distance ourselves or cut ourselves off, from other believers, when we limit their access to our lives, when we limit our gathering with the body, when we make it something of convenience rather than necessity, the work of God in us becomes shallow and it becomes slow and we become vulnerable. And parents hear me very, very carefully. We risk losing our children to the lies the world tells them when what they really need to live is the truth of their creator and redeemer expressed in the person and work of Jesus. I cannot say this strongly enough The world is out to disciple your kids away from Christ, the center. Your greatest work in your children's life is to point and keep pointing them to Jesus as the center. And allow your own behavior to be shaped constantly by the gospel so that when they look at you and see you living your life, they can say, I know that the truth resides in Jesus because I have seen it proven in the way he's worked in my imperfect mother, my imperfect father, my imperfect family. I've seen God work. Every song, every documentary, every show is a sermon with values and a worldview and a perspective that will either move you and your children closer to Christ or farther away from him. I'm not advocating for complete separation. How are we going to win the world if we don't know what the world is chasing after? But what I am saying is believers must learn what they believe and then filter everything they see and hear and experience through the lens of the gospel if they're going to stay faithful and if they're going to stay strong. And Christian parents need to train their children how to do that. And the pillar and buttress of the church must help them do that. We get maybe 
one or two hours a week with your kids? Only God in his omniscience knows how much time the internet gets. truth matters because what we believe drives our behavior and determines the course of our lives but when life is lived with the true church and the truth of God its work shapes believers into godliness and gives them strength the strength to stand that comes by receiving and holding fast to the gospel. It was July 15th of just this year, something happened that in Raleigh that that brings this reality into a sharp kind of timely focus. And I'm going to end with this. Our state's National Women's Soccer League franchise, The Courage, faced the uh, Los Angeles Angel City Club in Raleigh, and the North Carolina Courage Club had made the decision to make that Friday night game Pride Night and had new jerseys made with their logo in rainbow colors. One player, Jaylene Daniels, 29, refused to wear it. Jaylene Daniels is a follower of Jesus. Consequently, she was sidelined from the game for refusing to wear the jersey. And the team posted a statement before the game announcing Jaylene will not be rostered tonight as she has made the decision not to wear our pride jersey. While we're disappointed with her choice, we respect her right to make that decision for herself. We're excited to celebrate the LGBTQIA plus community with our fans, players, and staff tonight. We look forward to hosting our first ever Pride Festival before kickoff. This wasn't the first time that this had happened. In 2017, Jaylene refused to play for the women's international team for the very same reason, a Pride jersey. It's not that she hates homosexuals. It's that her commitment is to Christ as the center of the universe. Her deep commitment to Him as creator, Him as redeemer. She understands God's design for sex. She understands God's plan for gender. She understands. The same thing happened in 2017. And despite the 2017 controversy, the courage re-signed her. When it did, the team's decision was immediately met with sharp criticism. While keeping Jaylene's contract, the team reported after signing the contract that they had read all the message sent to them as a result, had reflected on their actions, and were, quote, sorry to all those they had hurt. Jaylene posted an online letter in response, and in my view, it was a strong gospel response to tremendous cultural pressure to quit, to back down, to give in. She said, and I quote, I remain committed to my faith. 
My desire is for people to know that my love for them isn't based on their belief system or their sexuality. Who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? I pray and firmly believe that my teammates know how much I cherish them, respect them, and love them. Ask her why. She will tell you it is because every man and woman on this planet was made in the image of God. Every person has value. Every person has worth. She doesn't appear to have spoken publicly about this latest ordeal back in July. But if you go and look, she keeps a tweet pinned to the top of her Twitter page. The post quotes Christian rapper Lecrae, and she has there, if you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. And then she finished it unashamed. Decision Magazine interviewed her, and she said that playing soccer at the highest levels under pressure has nurtured and tested her faith. It has helped her grow in her relationship with Jesus. She says, it's made me dig deeper into my faith and find out what I believe and why I believe it and help me be able to stand firm. What you don't find out is that behind Jaylene's story is a church in Raleigh. that is for her a pillar of truth and a buttress of truth that has walked with her through this extraordinary battle of truth that we're in. Loved her, encouraged her, reinforced for her what is right and good and true. I admire Jaylene. But I will tell you honestly, I admire Jesus far more. You talk about standing for the truth under pressure. Tell me, is that not what he did on the cross? The pressure was incredible for him to use his abilities as God to satisfy and please himself, and he would not do it. The pressure was extraordinary. He was rejected again and again and again. And all he ever did was show love. All he ever did was heal and help. And yet he was hated and he was scorned.
and ultimately found himself nailed and dying on an excruciating death on a cross. Because he would not compromise, he would not back down. He knew the truth. He was the truth. He knew the way. He was the way. He knew where life came from. He knew life came from him. And because of his great love, he did not back down. He did not give in. He did not give over. Jesus stood. And so while I respect Jaylene, I've got to tell you, I love Jesus. Because when he took his stand. He took his stand for me. He took his stand for you. And that is what we must never forget regardless of the pressure that comes there is no one and nothing like him no one can and no one ever will dare to love you or me like Jesus Lord God, in this place, we love, we honor you as we reflect on him who is the center of all things and the final truth. We bless you, Lord, for his great love for us. And we pray that you would find us stewarding the truth that he is and the truth that he's given well I pray Father that you will find us more and more pouring ourselves into each other and the life of the church so that we might encourage and strengthen each other to be strong that we might be found gathering and scattering and gathering and scattering and gathering and scattering making an eternity's worth of difference in a world that is full of darkness and desperately needs the light that brings life. May that be true of us, Lord. May Jesus freaks of us, I pray. For Jesus' sake. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.